on the side of fitness, I just learned more about how important movement is. You don't have to do it every single day, but if you do it consistently and maintain it so it's sustainable, and then you balance that with what you're eating and how you're sleeping, especially as we get older, it's always going to be a work in progress, but that's something I didn't understand when I was younger and, and how important it is as you age. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Heart Inspired, the show dedicated to highlighting individuals in their pursuit of authentic leadership. We peel back the layers to uncover the roadblocks we all face, explore the actions we can take, and how to persevere towards the best version of ourselves. It is my hope that you'll be inspired by their story and gain some insights to help you in your own journey. Tori Campbell was born in South Korea, but orphaned at birth. Adopted by white parents from the United States, raised in the Northeast. While she embraces her ethnicity, it has been a struggle to fully identify with her Asian heritage. After a breast cancer diagnosis at age 40, she uprooted her life to move across the country to start a new journey. With all the adversity she has faced, she continues to remain positive with a passion to giving back to others. Please welcome my guest, Tori Campbell. Tori, it's so good to see you. Thank you for coming on the show today. Likewise, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So when we first met, you know, we had our exchange on LinkedIn and it was just casual exchange. But then when we had the conversation, you started to share your story. I just knew that this was a story that, first of all, it, it pulled on my heartstrings and I just knew it was a story that had to be told. I, I find you're very compassionate and transparent. And so let's hear about you and, and share with the audience your story. So tell us a little bit about when you first started out in life. It starts out with a bang, Michelle. So when I was born in South Korea, I was abandoned immediately when I was born. So as an orphan, uh, I don't know my birth parents. So I mm. was found and then placed in an orphanage in Seoul and later adopted into the U.S. just when I was under eight months old. Mm. So I flew to John F. Kennedy when I was that age. And my parents at the time, my adoptive parents picked me up because this time you didn't uh, get an option to pick up your child. So was raised in a very small rural town in Connecticut and had a very nice, you know, normal childhood. And then things started to kind of go south with my parents as my dad struggled with depression and he was an attorney. And just them as parents, they did great, but them as a couple, not so well. You know, one of the things we'll probably talk about is it was a difficult decision, but I do not speak with my family, my extended family or my parents. And that was a decision I made about six years ago or maybe more because it was in the work seven or eight years ago. But yeah. it takes it took time to fully understand that I had to make that tough decision. And even worse was I couldn't really tell them what I was doing because that had repercussions. It almost feels like abandonment by not a choice or that you were chosen. And now you've chosen to abandon. I know it's not about, you know, you'd think it's about completing the circle. Well, I was abandoned and therefore I'm going to just screw everyone, screw other people over and do it to people who didn't deserve it. It's, it's not that it's, yeah. I just happened to have been adopted by people who were very good parents, but were not good as a couple. Yeah. And that it was a high emotional abuse on the, on the side of my mother to a, to a parent who suffered from depression, who mm. on his own without depression wasn't, he didn't like conflict. So it was kind of like bullying. Yeah. And I saw a lot of dysfunction, then codependency, and then there was some violence and being an only child, you know, and, and it happening when I was an adult, not a child, uh, not as a, you know, kid, but as yeah. a, when I was old enough to form my own opinions. 
and it was affecting my life, you really have to understand that you have to step away from that. You, I can't, I can't dictate my parents' relationship. Right. As it was, I was already too involved with like refereeing their fights and it just, it was, and it was affecting my life. So that's not on them. That's on, that's on me to fix. So by choice and probably a good choice for your own well-being and your mental health, for sure. I wasn't doing this to stick it to anonymous parents. I don't even know. It was a separate, you know, 40 years, you know, 35, 40 years later decision. Yeah. It had nothing to do with what happened in Korea because I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about the circumstances that led those people to do that. I have no idea how hard, I'm sure it was difficult. So for any mother or dad listening, do you think it would be easy for any young person who I'm assuming they were, they were probably young to make that choice? Let's talk about that because when we first met, there was something very interesting that was going on with my research and what I was dealing with myself is that who you related to on the inside doesn't match who you are on the outside. And so when we were talking, you talked about who you identify as. And so share with me a little bit about what that's like. So you identify being grown up in Connecticut by a white family. And yet you are visibly yeah, Asian it's, it's born. Having, it's yeah. an exterior of Asian ethnicity, but it's an interior of a Caucasian middle-class upbringing. And they gave me a white name, right? So, I mean, how Victoria Campbell, that's pretty white. Tori's my nickname. Yeah. So, you know, that has repercussions because I didn't understand what it was like to be Asian or I kind of like shunned Asian people when I was younger. And that was immaturity. I also was told by someone when I was seeing, I was in therapy because my parents were going through such crap. She found it very interesting that they they did not impart any Korean culture into my upbringing. But in fairness, where they lived, they didn't have a lot of Korean culture around them. Yeah. In Connecticut, Connecticut, it's one thing if they lived in the city, but they didn't. It's one thing if they lived out here in San Francisco or LA, but they didn't. They lived in a very small town and they grew up in those small towns. So they wanted someone as a daughter to be, I think, just like them. Yeah. Be in a small town, get married, pop out a few kids and live the <laughs> life that live the life that they were living. And I kind of just happenstance, although I think my mother would argue I rebelled, but I happenstance kind of said, no, that's not for me. It yeah. started with her insisting I go to church as Parents, they wanted to give me a religion, a religious background, and they weren't rolling in the aisles. They were very moderate Protestants, but I always didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't identify with it. I didn't understand it. So you forced me to do something that much. And now I never want to step in like inside a church again. I really don't. I feel uncomfortable. When you were growing up, did you ever have that confusion or thought that this is who I am? So why do you see me differently? I didn't see myself differently. I guess I just from like, you know, when you're one to like, even through adolescence, I didn't really think of it that way. And then I was teased a little bit or picked on, but I just, you know, I just dealt with that being, you know, everyone gets picked on when they're a teenager. So Uh I I was, I did go to private school. My parents put me in a different school because they knew I was struggling. And I I made really good friends that way. That was a, it was a better, that was better for me because it had a little bit more diversity because there Mm -hmm. are actually African-American people in my class. There are some people. So that was good. But obviously you, you, you're just, you're not even really receptive to that. I don't think until you get into college and then what you start doing in college. So in college, I I attended a very small liberal arts school in Massachusetts. Good school. I just think in hindsight, I should have gone to a a bigger school. But when I studied abroad, oh, because it was like 1500 people. It wasn't, (laughs) I'm not saying I should have gone to like University of Michigan with like 50,000 people, but I think somewhere in between that would have been 
better for me, but I did study abroad my whole junior year. And that was very good to live in a metropolitan European city for eight, nine months. And then before that I had actually been to Europe. So, you know, the, they were, they were good in the sense of they made sure I saw Europe before I got out of high school. And that's Mm. good for any development as, as a young person to see another culture, to appreciate that, to be open to it, because now I have, you know, I love traveling and I love visiting other places, but I, I never had a complex about it. It was something I, as I aged, I realized, well, you know, I, I probably have some issues with it, but not nothing of anger or bitterness. I just had to understand, like, this is where I was born and that's what happened. Keep it simple. Yeah. I don't need to make all these psychological, philosophical ideas about it. I just have to say, well, this is actually what happened. When did curiosity come in, if ever, about, you know, your culturally or your birth parents? I mean, I, I know you mentioned that it is what it is and struggling, what have you, but just as an overall being no, related just, to that. I'm, it's a mild, it's a curiosity assuaged by the fact that I'll never really know. So yeah, you can't get too curious or too inquisitive or obsessed about it when the chances of you ever finding out are next to none. So yeah, it's just not mean to be negative at just being factual. Yeah. And what about being curious about why maybe, and I'm not sure you tell me certain things that you do, certain things that you have decided in your life. You know, sometimes we say it's in our DNA, it's culturally. Have you ever had something that feel felt different than who, how you were raised and wondering where that's coming from? I don't know. I, that's a good question. I, I mean, they raised me to be polite. You know, there were manners, etiquette, you yeah. know, going to school, trying your best. They were supportive. They didn't have any unreasonable expectations, but yeah. And obviously when you're, when you've been around two people for most of your life, they rub off on you as parents, but I'm, I think I'm very different from my adoptive parents. You know, one of my natural parents had to be very independent and feisty. And my mother would always say, Oh, I'm a strong woman. And I, and it's like, well, you may be strong, but you're also really defensive and, you know, too ultra sensitive and you, you lash out and you have tantrums. So you're saying you're strong, but you're, I think you're trying to sell yourself on that because you're, you're blowing out your shoulder, patting yourself on the back that you're going through this and that you can do it. But I'm not holding you to that. I didn't want her to be married to them. Yeah. So I don't think there's ever a decision and I just don't know their identities and who they stood for. So I can't really speak to what I I can't extrapolate that. Yeah. Interesting. Off to college, you went and you started to, you know, be a little bit more exposed to diversity and, and start to see things for where they were at home. At what time was it? You said as a young adult, you decided to move away from that toxicity. I mean, I moved out of the house when I was 24, 20, yeah, 24. Cause it was just, it was becoming bad and I didn't really have a lot of money, but I think I cashed in a bond I just gotten when I when I graduated. So I barely had enough to squeak together for a, a deposit, but I did. And I didn't even move that far away, but just having my own space was yeah. important. And then again, when you're that young, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. So I think anything, everything in my life that I've that I now have or a fallen, it it's just because I fell into it. I didn't int- ever intend to use my major. I was a runner in college, but that was more recreational. So all the fitness that I talk about now, how, how that's a big part of my life. I, d- I didn't, that was not a part of my life when I was half my age, when mm. I was in my early twenties. So it's, mm. these are things I have found on my own and, and not because, Oh, my dad was a professional musician or my mother was a professional athlete or an artist. They, 
they did very well, but they didn't use that to me. So, so that was something I, you I found, found a lot of my own. life on my own. The fitness part of it, that's great way to take care of, you know, oneself and mental health and, and being. So that was during your younger years after you moved out from your parents' home and you had that independence. Tell us what happened next with, with your separation from parents altogether. How did that start to well, that was so if I moved out in my mid-20s, it really didn't get bad until maybe my early 30s, early to mid-30s. And it, it was really getting to be like a crisis situation. I just, you know, one of them would lean on me more and tell me more about what was going on. But she would say it in a way where I really it was kind of it was a it was at the apparel of another parent. So I don't know what she was expecting me to say. Yeah, at least it was for maybe for her support. But to calm her, but I don't know what I literally could have told her that would have appeased her. Yeah. Um, and you're the child. And I'm the child. So what am I supposed to say about my other parents? So yeah. it just was this, it was pattern of that. And I knew that he wasn't, you know, he was getting treatment. He was in, uh, he went to um, outpatient at Yale. I think he had shock therapy. He was on all these medications, which he didn't take properly, but that's, that's on him. My mom can only do so much, but it was just a dysfunctional situation all around. After many holidays of going there, and just my mom would have a, a tantrum and she'd just get on my dad's case and a lot of screaming and yelling and name calling. And, and it's not your average bickering, like family bickering, mm. way worse than that. Yeah. I just slowly decided to like step away and not, and not call as much and not be as present in their lives. And ultimately I, I, I didn't anymore. And I couldn't yeah. really be candid with my mother because she would say she would blame it on my dad. So mm. everything was someone else's fault. So yeah. I didn't feel I couldn't be candid with her because there, someone else would suffer. And I, I don't want to put all more than he already was. I would not put him in that position. Yeah. So it's selfish, but like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. Like I already knew what was going on. So I don't want to have a, a hand in placing more of that on him. Yeah. So, and legally I cannot compel him to leave a situation. So I couldn't yeah. take him somewhere or rescue him. I, it's it's very sad, but I I had to get away from it. Yeah, for your own well being. End of the day, they're both adults, and I can't I can't be that I can't be in that way for them. Yeah, exactly. You are a cancer survivor. Yes, stage Tell one. Stage one. Well, I was. Um, it's good to uh, see you. Yes, I know. <laughs> when I was thirty nine, I had a freak weightlifting accident, and I broke two fingers. And then as I was going to occupational therapy and dealing with all that. I was in for my normal checkup being a woman and my nurse practitioner found a lump that wasn't there a year before. So, you know, more appointments and more tests and then by a biopsy and then a surgery. And it just, it all was a blur and it happened really quickly. And I didn't have time to question. I just had to do what I was told to do. So, and even knowing I had to go through surgery and that, but I knew, I, I knew it was caught early. I knew I had excellent care. I knew it wasn't ever going to be a question of like dying, but you do, you yeah. of course think about that and reflect upon your own life. And then once I clear treatment that next year in 2017, there was no longer a question of what I always wanted to do. It was a question of when I, when I was going to do it. So mm. it really gave me something invaluable where it pushed me to think uh, very intently what I wanted out of my life. And I'd always balked at 
making a move because I always wanted to live in California. So by that summer, I'd made the decision. And then I I think I visited San Diego that prior Thanksgiving because I didn't want to be with my family. So that's the one time I saw it. And I said, hey, this is a great city. I, I don't really like LA. I didn't really, I love the Bay Area, but it was just different vibe. Yeah. So in that fall, I sold all my things and moved here um, without a job and for less than about $1,400. And I, and I, it wasn't always a honeymoon. It wasn't always perfect, but you have to hustle and have a lot of persistence and a little bit of its luck. Well, you were definitely a survivor twice, maybe yeah. even more. You're, you're, you definitely survived the one, two punch more than once. So, um, it's, it's great. And congratulations for being a survivor and, you know, your health is the most important thing. So one of the things that you mentioned is that physical fitness is, is a big part of your life. So at what age did that start? I was a runner when I was in college, but that was just like, just cause I knew I had to do something, but really like physical, like consistent was, I started CrossFit in my mid to late mid thirties, like 35, 36 mm. made some amazing friends kind of understood what, you know, getting strong was. And then CrossFit can be there. There some of their workouts are just silly. Like it's just 40 minutes of just how many calories can you output? And sometimes depending on your coaching, you can get hurt because it's, it's a, it's a very unique sport and it pushes a lot of people, which is good. But then I found weightlifting and that's more technique powered with it's a lot mental as well. And I was competing then at like a very local level, local meets. Um, but there's in weightlifting, there's a category for people 35 and older, which is called masters. So even in CrossFit, they have master's divisions. And some of those people are very competitive. But it on the side of fitness, it's I just learned more about what is how important movement is. You don't have to do it every single day, but if you do it consistently and maintain it so it's sustainable, not running 40 miles a day. This is not what I'm talking about, or not going to the gym for hours a day. You know, I I attend four to five classes a week. Sometimes I push it more than that. Other times I I back it off because if I'm sore. And then you balance that with what you're eating and how you're sleeping, especially as we get older, it's not meant to be perfect. It's, it's always going to be a work in progress, but, um, that's something I didn't understand when I was younger and and how important it is as you age. And so do you find that I'm sure you go for regular checkups now as a cancer survivor. And so do you find that, uh, your doctors are pleased with how you're taking care of yourself and, and because they, they tend to have these, I don't know. I went to the doctor recently and they said, Oh, are you exercising? I said, yes, three times a week. Okay. Keep that up. And I'm thinking I used to exercise six times a week. So, right. (laughs) You know, I don't know how much in tune they are, but how has that helped you with, with being a a cancer survivor? Well, in all, in all honesty, I really haven't, I've only, I think coming off treatment and going through so many appointments, I kind of gave the finger to going back to doctors right away. And oh, besides, okay. I didn't have insurance when I moved here. So yep. I actually have not been to, you don't get to see an oncologist again, unless you have cancer, okay. I would have to go see a specialist right now. And so I've okay. always I've had decent insurance out here, but all I knew I needed to do is get another mammogram, which I finally did this past January. And that was like the first one in years. So I'm sure people don't want to hear that who are more medically trained, <laughs> um, but I now know, I know what, what I can do to, to lessen my chances of a reoccurrence and to put myself in the best position not to have a reoccurrence, but there's only so much power I have over that. So it's, you know, eventually I will 
you know, I'll probably have another mammogram next year. So then they can, they can have two proceeding mammograms of, okay, this is what, this is what it looked like a year ago. This is what it looks like now, but I know the medical industry more now. Like you don't just get an MRI just because you want one. You have to, at that point, see a specialist. They've got to review your history, your prior records. Um, So it's a diff, it's very different versus when you actually have a mass that has to get looked at. Yeah. Now I'm coming. I'm not, I don't, I I can't actually tell you I'm in remission because I don't have any hard proof. I do, or I don't, Mm. I'm very confident. I don't, but you know, I just, I can't live my, I can't live my life like that thinking, oh my God, there's something in me. It's always going to be a problem down the road. You just have to do the best things consistently on the whole. And if your, if your body really does take that path where your pathology changes and a cell turns and it, that's probably not because what I'm doing for fitness or my eating. Yeah. You know, I want to be human. Like I thought, Oh, do I have to stop drinking? Do I have to give up sugar? Like I've not given up any of those things. (laughs) Good for you. I'm all about moderation. I'm, you know, yeah, exactly. You got to live your life. And that's ironically what cancer teaches you have to be live your life and, and know how precious it is. So if I'm, if I do pass, do I want to think, well, I really didn't get to do that because I limited myself. Yeah. And, and there obviously is a reason there's, there's, um, you know, that's not being reckless. That's I'm, there's, I'm not talking about being reckless, but there's yeah. a, there's a mindset that you, I think you, you have to incorporate for a healthy perspective going forward. Absolutely. So Tori, you have separated from your family. You've moved across the country. You've survived breast cancer. What's the inner circle like for you? How have you developed that family or that support to help keep you going? Because you're independently driven, no doubt. But who do you lean on? I mean, I have, I left a lot of my close friends in Connecticut, so I still have them. It's just now it's at a distance because with the time, with the time change, it's three hours. It's, it's not easy to keep in touch with people, but I do have my close knit there. And then I'm developing people out here. So I don't know if I have, closeness with friends on that level where I do in Connecticut, but mm. some are, you know, getting there. Cause I just have known them a lot less time. And then, you know, I am dating someone and that's blossoming. So we oh, just that's actually, new since we last spoke. Well, I just didn't mention it to you. Like, oh, actually, okay. <laughs> um, I've been dating him since January and we actually had a, not a hard conversation, but I, um, I just wanted to make sure that we were okay. We're not fighting. There's no, there's no strife. I just, nothing. I wrote to him. I said, it hasn't ever mattered in the past that I feel connected to someone the way I do with you. So I just want to make sure I'm everything's okay. Cause he's not been feeling well. I think he, he actually said he admitted he was a hypochondriac on the phone, which I've always wanted to tell him that, but that's kind of mean. Like <laughs> he just gets very like anxious when he gets sick. And I, that's not how I get. So I have to put really put myself in someone else's shoes, but he's, He's been a big support. He knows my story. So that, I mean, that's really what I'm going for. I want, you know, I'm looking for a best friend and for someone to spend the rest of my life with because I've never been married. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to have children? No, no. (laughs) I I knew that when I was 15. Mm -mm, No kids. Really? I don't, I, yeah, I don't think I'm even. You're not wired for it? I don't think it's possible at this point. So even though I'm very healthy, I just you know, when I was going through cancer, I'd always been on birth control. And my surgeon was like, when was your last depot shot? And I said, it was, it's going to be in a week. She's like, well, that's your last one. You got to go off of that. So um, I, I'm sure that affected 
you know, my fertility as a, as a human being. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that or not, there's the same way you were brought into this world and into your family that you're estranged from those, those are opportunities, but you know yourself better than anyone, mm-hmm. what you're, what you're yearning for. Right. And Never what's important to you. I like children. I just didn't want any of my own. It's, it wasn't important to me. It's not in the cards for you. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have mentioned that you have taken a break from your position. Um, and you're looking for your next opportunity. Yes. And so tell me a little bit about what are you most passionate about when it comes to work? What are, what are the things that you really enjoy doing that you've been good at? I mean, I have good trans, I have very good transferable skills. And for, you know, for, for, for anyone to do any job, you have to do some sort of admin work. You just do. Yeah. I don't care if you're a philanthropist, if you're a doctor, there's charts to fill out, there's paperwork bullshit. So I've always been good at like attention to detail, communicate, uh, you know, oral and written communication. I've always been good at very transferable skills, but it's, it's been backfiring lately because I haven't found an industry where I've really been able to feel more fulfilled. And that's again, more important to me now than it was when I was younger, because after going through cancer, I do want to give back more. So Mm. to this day, present day, I'm still searching for something that would allow me to give back and help people, but utilizing the skills I do have, but no, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a data analyst. I'm not a, you know, software engineer. I don't have those skills. So it's, I, you know, it's kind of like putting us around, around, you know, fitting around peg in a square hole. Square hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It's a finite, it's probably very finite and very, uh, it's going to be a small, like a very small percentage of people will be able to do what I do, but because most people have like, okay, I'm an attorney, I'm a counselor. They have a, they have a specific academic background that they went to school for. And now that they're applying as a career, but some people don't have that. Some people have, you know, left what they're, what they were trained to do, to do something that they enjoy doing. And that's what I'm trying to find. Yeah. So if you had to paint a picture of your dream job, what would it be? I thought about this. Is there such a thing as like a a la carte personal assistant? Because a lot of times personal assistant just means, oh, you run, you run the household, you run their, you run their bills, you, you work with house staff. I don't know. I just, I just picture more of like, what if people are just too busy and they can't travel where I can, and then they need someone to proxy for them and do things for them and be instructed how to do them, but, or just take their role and do that, do it for them physically because everyone's too busy nowadays. Right. Yeah. So, or on the more philanthropic side, like, could I ever, you know, speak and motivate people by being a motivational speaker and saying, this is what I've been through. Uh, You know, maybe the hope this has an impact in your life or what you're going through. I can speak through my experience, but I also, sometimes I think the negative part of me thinks that's very like, I don't want to just be a, you know, patting myself on the back or it's all about me, but you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, people going through cancer, they, they, they do need that. They they need support Yeah, and family can only give it in a certain way. And sometimes it's comforting to know that you have someone else who's been through it. So, and I had two people reach out to me after I went through cancer and who I don't usually, they were friends of mine, but I didn't really keep in touch with them. And I said, why are you? why are you asking me all that? Are you okay? And they actually had cancer. So they were asking, wow. they were asking my personal opinions about, you know, they were just, they were venting, whatever it was, they were seeking advice, whatever you want to call it. So I was very 
humbled. And that's, that's where I come from. It's all, it's more humility than anything. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, I do have a short story to share based on experience. And I don't think I should have to hold back on that. Yeah. No, I I mean, that's why we're here. When you shared your story, it was a story I felt that, you know, needs to be told. Um, You know, a lot of times people do when they have these um, traumas or, you know, life-changing things happen in their life. Most people have family that they rely on. And what I find really um, amazing is that you made a choice based on your own health and well-being to separate yourself from a family that was toxic. And yet you still went through this and survived. And, and it could have gone so many other ways, you know? So I think your story is important for people to know that there are other options to get support. There are other ways to keep pushing through. And I, and I was lucky. I mean, it just, I had my friends and maybe it was my, my disposition as it was. I I don't, I try to be calm and, you know, especially under high stress situations, I think I'm calm and I just try to get through it. So I had Mm. to, um, And I knew that reaching out to my parents would cause a lot of stress and make it harder for me to deal with what I was going through. So, right. But this is not, this is not everyone's experience or, no. or thought. And I understand that. So it's, it's, I don't speak from arrogance here. I just, I just, I did what I did, but that's yeah. obviously I'm not saying or suggesting that works for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that lucky. those, there are those who, you know, that's a bold decision to do what you did, you know, okay, just put it into action, do what you needed to do, take care of Tori and, you know, keep pushing through and relying on those who, who are your inner circle, who would most support you, because that is hard to go through that with people who may be fueling negativity. Exactly. And they weren't in the best space to deal with it themselves because they had so much turmoil on their own side. So it, kind of a funny story when you, when you, when I had to go to surgeries, I had to, I had to get driven there. Right. Cause you're obviously going to be put under. And I had the person had to sign their name and say that they would stay with me for uh, up to 24 hours after surgery. So I, on each, with each friend I chose, I said, look, I don't care what you sign or what you sign your name to, but we're going to eat. And then we're all, you can bring me home, but you're not going to sit there and watch me nap. I'm kicking you out. And we're going to have that private agreement. Cause I don't, that's, I understand that that's a liability for any hospital, but this is not how we're going to do this. And I was fine. So you were really a take control kind of lady. Well, I mean, they didn't have a choice. I'm like, if they, I said, I want, I need your help. I'm asking, just drive me there. I'm sorry. You got to wait. Then we'll go get something to eat. Cause I'll be famished. Cause you can't eat the night before surgery. You, you fast. Right. And yep. then, you know, get, I'm, I was never like, I, I could always walk or I was always fu- fully functional. And then they get, I, they drive me back. I'm like, hey, I'm going to go take a nap and you're dismissed. Like, I can't have some, I just, I don't know. Yeah. I just, I just, I understand the spirit of why hospitals require that. But I just think it's, it, depending on the circumstance and the surgery, it's overkill. And for mine, it was, I didn't have my heart taken out. I had a tumor taken out. Yeah. Although I did drive one of the nights because it was like near Christmas. I got in my car to go to a bar actually, because my friend was up the street and I got, I remember getting in, I'm like, oh, this is why they tell you I shouldn't drive within 24 hours of anesthesia. Cause I'm like, good thing. It's only three miles. <laughs> Listeners don't take her advice. Yeah, as I say, not as I do, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it was only three miles up the road and it was, it was country driving, but I get it. You just, you kind of feel like you kind of feel hungover. 
that's how you that's how anesthesia can feel yeah. you feel a little nauseous and like not all there but it's kind of how you feel when you drink too much so yeah yeah if you had a speaking engagement to tell your story what would be the platform you'd want it on ooh i mean how many what kind of platforms are there i mean i think i I know of the TED or the TEDx. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Would yeah. you want to be a TEDx speaker? Yeah, I think I think so. But I've, I've researched it. Like you have, like obviously, public speaking isn't just people paying to go to listen to someone just blab blabble. You have to have an idea. Yeah, and a way to get your idea across where that's interesting. And a lot of people have ideas every day, every day, every day, and all across the country, people have ideas. What's right. an idea that I could bring to the table that would? that would mean a lot to a, a, a mass amount of people. And I think just based on my experiences, I have, I have experienced with depression, even though I luckily have not been, I have not suffered from that cancer uh, adoption. So, but obviously those are, you know, you could do one talk all day for each one of those topics. So I guess that would have to be perfected. Uh, but I, I don't know if it was, if, or just being self-aware, like, you know, I don't think in school we're taught the right things. We're just taught history or, you know, I don't know if we're actually taught finance or how to manage, how to manage interpersonal relationships. And you leave that up to who you, who you surround yourself with. Yeah. So that's also, those are other, those are other topics that I, yeah. that I'd love to talk about and not that I'm perfect at them, yeah. but I've certainly, you know, I identify certain things that are not acceptable and you yeah. can't, keep going back to something expecting a different result. Cause that's insanity. And I, a lot of people in my life I know have done that and it's, it hasn't worked for them. Yeah. And, so, and those are very hard lessons and no one, they, everyone learns at a different pace and has different ideas to bring to the table on that. So everybody learns at a different pace and a different way. Exactly. Um, you know, I was reading something, I was doing some research on autism and um, there's a quote that says, don't teach them how you teach, teach them how they learn. Yeah. I think I may have it a little bit screwy, but the, the, the concept is, is that, you know, they're, they're talking about autistic children who have that, but as adults who are, who do not have that, the same concept should apply. So very just interesting. Opening up, how, how would people feel comfortable opening up to someone who is basically a complete stranger and saying, or letting someone talk and say, oh, yeah, I identify with that because this is something I encounter a lot. So, right. Exactly. Um, but exactly. that's 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 an ideal situation. I don't think I'm going to just get swooped up as a uh, as a professional speaker um, in the short term. What can I do that brings me more fulfillment that can pay the bills? So, yeah. So that's what I, your quest is right now. Exactly. And obviously it, and then this has changed. I never cared about remote work a few years ago. I just always commuted into work because I never had to commute that much, but like so many of us, like you know? a lot of us. And then yeah. that changed. And also my personal life changed when I worked with my, just the employer I just resigned from, I didn't, I wasn't in this relationship a year ago. So I didn't mind necessarily driving up to the office and, and that yeah. was after COVID. So I just accepted it as part of like, you had to be there. And then things do change and then your, your priorities change. So, you know, I can work for, I can work from home yeah. just as well. And he never got in the way. If he was here, it would just be like, just nice. It's comforting having someone here, but you're still engaged with your work, but you're not having to like run out the door. And it's just, it's a better quality of life. And that's what I'm after. Yeah. And that's what I was after, after cancer. It's just 
what's it that's why I moved it made me it made me seek a better quality of life because I I feel like it it's it, it, it becomes stagnant in Connecticut yeah every step that you've taken from the story you have shared with us has been one more step closer to a better quality of life you know you've reached that quality of life you then have some roadblocks and then you have you know a little adversity that's happened and then you've done whatever you've had to do to have another better quality of life and so this i think is the path that you are continuously on is to continue to have a better quality of life so i have no doubt that you'll you'll land something that's going to give you that balance for right. sure i appreciate that encouragement michelle it's i didn't think of it that way but yeah i, I try to raise the bar consistently yeah. obviously i'm not going to raise it if it doesn't need to get raised i'm not looking to pick a fight with my right. own life but right. it, i've had i have had to do that and then apparently it's not over yet so no. Maybe, I, maybe I have just one more step to do. One more step to do. Exactly. And I have no doubt you will take that step. <laughs> it's it's a work in progress. So absolutely. Um, wow, this has been great. Well, Tori, it has been um, amazing having you on on the show. Um, I know when we first met and you shared just tidbits of, of you know, your journey, I thought, wow, what what an uh what a woman of courage and and bravery and vulnerability for sure to be open with a total stranger. And now I feel like we're, we're no longer strangers for oh, sure. Oh no, not, not anymore, Michelle. Not oh. anymore. Exactly. And um, I wish you all the best. I can't wait. I'm going to see, I want to see Tori Campbell TEDx speaker. Oh yeah. I'd love that. <laughs> Wouldn't that, that be, be nice? That would be Please. amazing. Right. Thank you so much again for being on the show and sharing your story and being as open as you are. I wish you all the best health, well-being, and peace in, in your heart. No, I appreciate, Michelle, your invitation, especially since we met as strangers and so appreciative of that. Furthermore, if you have any listener who wants to contact me, I can share with you my information and they they can by extension contact me if they were to listen to this and want to conduct that's that's how open i am absolutely and on the podcast in the in the description i will definitely have your linkedin information so that people can connect with you that way sounds good all right well have a great day and thank you so much again for being on the show awesome you're welcome thank you Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode of the Heart Inspired Podcast. Until then, I'm your host, Michelle Delgado. And don't forget to lean in, be heard, be inspired. This podcast was created by Heartmetrics Consulting, editing and co-produced by David Castle Productions, and co-distributed by Business Travel 360. For more information about Heartmetrics Consulting, visit us at heartmetrics.com. Heartmetrics.com.